Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. I'm Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence. Uh, we are very grateful to Business Conference Centre for hosting this morning, courtesy of the National Apprenticeship Service, with whom we are partnering on this event, together with Taylor Bennett, the executive search firm, and also New Deal of the Mind, with whom we are uh, running Talent to Work, the new networking service for the not-yet-employed group. Um, this subject is obviously topical. I feel slightly naughty that we've plagiarised the title Internation from a book of the same name by Ross Perlin that's just come out, which unfortunately Ross was unable to be on this panel, so um, a respectful nod uh, for that rather apt title. I'm going to hand over straight away to the chair, who is Brian Groom. Brian is the UK Business and Employment Editor of the Financial Times, who are also the Chief Media Partner for Editorial Intelligence's club events this year. Brian is about the most apt person to be chairing this discussion, and so without any further ado, I'm going to hand over to him, apart from to say, as usual, this is podcast, if when it comes to speaking, you must remember that you will be immortalised forever in the ether. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Julia, and welcome to this event. Um, I can see it's uh, generating a lot of interest. It's uh, a very, very hot topic, as Julia says. Um, in many ways, our labour market has um, come through this recession in, um, in um, quite good shape, much better than anybody would have predicted and better than previous recessions. But um, uh, young people have had a particularly difficult time. Uh, youth unemployment has been approaching a million. That's a figure that's a little bit distorted by some full-time students being counted in the numbers. Uh, but it's still a high figure. And the, the, the alarming thing about it is that um, it was growing before the recession for several years. And when the recession has ended, uh, we're still going to have an underlying structural problem of maybe 9 or 10% core youth unemployment. We're no better than the rest of Western Europe on that score. Um, for, for graduates... Um, it's a little, the picture's a little brighter in that it's much more um, cyclical. Uh, a lot of graduates uh, are not getting jobs at the moment that will get jobs in better times. Um, but the whole question, even before the recession, the whole question of fair access to the best kind of jobs and employment and internships and who gets them and what conditions they get them uh, is being very, very emotive. Um, and we've got a wide-ranging panel to discuss these things with you. Um, on to my right, we have Simon Moore, who is Executive Chairman of the National Apprenticeship Scheme. Simon's been there since the beginning of 2009. Um, he was formerly Chief Executive of AWD Chase De Vere, uh, a leading wealth management business. And before that, he was a Managing Director of Centrica. Um, immediately to my right, uh, we have Faye Wenman, who's a trustee of the Taylor Bennett Foundation. Uh, Faye... Uh, joined them in 2005, and she consults on corporate communication roles with a particular interest in reputation management, uh, digital communications, corporate responsibility, and sustainable development. Uh, 
Second on my left is Laura Penny, uh, journalist, author and activist, it says here, who's a 24-year-old who is getting useful employment and writing some very feisty columns in The Statesman and The Guardian and elsewhere. So she lives in a little hovel room somewhere in London, mainly eating toast and trying to set the world to rights. <laughs> Start reading stuff off my blog. Mostly <laughs> <laughs> writing when I'm very tired. And here to my is Gemma Lines, who's head of graduate marketing, recruitment and development at City. Um, and she's been involved in marketing of people and learning-based businesses for some years, including being director of marketing at um, uh, BPP College, uh, the UK's only for-profit uh, for educational provider to have degree-awarding powers. And not least, on my extreme left here, is uh, Martin Bright, uh, known to all of you as a, a journalist who's worked for um, the BBC, The Guardian, The Observer, uh, now he writes a blog for The Spectator, writes for The Jewish Chronicle. Um, but Martin also formed New Deal of the Mind uh, in January 2009, which is a coalition of artists, entrepreneurs, academics and opinion formers working to boost employment in the creative sector during the recession. They're all going to talk for up to five minutes and then hopefully we'll have um, a good chance for a wide-ranging discussion. There are no, I'm not setting any bounds on this. I know there's people come into this speaking the, from, from speaking to some of you beforehand with lots of different interests. I don't want to set any bounds on where this goes, um, but um, we'll, we'll see where our speakers take us and um, hopefully we can have a, a good debate about it. Uh, Simon, you want to go first? I'd love to. Good morning, everybody. Um, you probably think, as I'm chairman of the Government's Apprenticeship Programme, that what I'm going to do is do a, a five-minute pitch for apprenticeships, um, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, what I would like to do is make three or four key points in the five minutes, because I know we're going to have a discussion afterwards. Um, let me first off say, when we talk about how do we skill up young people, um, one of the reasons I was really keen to, um, having spent 32 years in the private sector, to work in the public sector, but focusing on skills and apprenticeships, is I guess I, I, I love the underdog. And yeah, for the many years I was in business with large organizations, Lloyds Bank, American Express, Centrica, when we owned British Gas and the AA and so on, I was very heavily involved in um, all three or, or many other uh, programs around skilling people through recruiting graduates straight from uh, university and, and we had a big graduate program at Centrica, about 150 graduates a year. Um, I uh, instigated the, the change of British Gas's skills strategy and apprenticeship program where we were taking about 30 apprentices a year and I changed that when I was running British Gas um, to around 350 a year. I've seen internships operating and so on. And I guess one of the things I always felt as an, as an employer um, was that skills weren't really respected and had certainly nowhere near the level of, if you like, kudos and reputation um, that going to university and having a degree. And it's certainly something that John Hayes, the skills minister, um, as an employee of biz, as I am, that... Yeah, I think that what I would like to put forward is that we need to rebalance not just the economy between the private and public sector, but rebalance the view between if you're bright and smart, and I have to say predominantly middle class, you'll go to university. If you're not that bright um, and you're quite good with your hands, well, maybe you should go down the vocational skills route. Well, that's a pretty inappropriate 
view for a, a world where we have to compete globally um, against countries such as Germany, Singapore, Korea, um, North America, where in fact vocational routes in many of those countries are seen to have exactly the same level of esteem as the HE um, and degree route. So the first thing I would say is the reason I work on apprenticeships is not that I believe that apprenticeships are the solution to all, everything and is the route for all young people. It isn't. The simple fact is we have to be much smarter about identifying what skills we need in the future in this country, what jobs are going to be created if we're going to rebalance the economy and have much greater um, job creation in the private sector, but what sectors are they going to be in? And how are we going to compete in a global economy? And we've already started looking at areas such as creative and cultural skills, where we have some inbuilt advantages as a country. And we saw that, I guess, with things like the Royal Wedding and our, our, our um, history um, and, and so much of our heritage in some of those areas of filmmaking and music. The digital economy, some real advantages we may have in terms of the global economy, <coughs> bioscience, low carbon. So there's some areas, and then the question is, if we identify there are some areas of our economy, by 2020 we can create half a million, a million new sustainable jobs, then how are we going to skill our people? And the one thing I would say is that because we have, in my view, disproportionately pushed people down the HE university route to the detriment of the skills, the vocational route, the apprenticeship route, it's not always actually creating um, a, a young cohort of people coming out that are actually really employable. And the, I'd spend most of my life talking to employers, and the skills they talk about are not just the technical skills, they feel they can give that to the young people. It is actually about employability. And one of the things I would say is we need, I think, to identify much earlier on what occupations, what jobs, what careers really do benefit from someone going down the HE university route and what the vocational route, and then identifying if someone at a young age, 14, 15, 16, begins to realize, actually, I know what I want to do in my life, and I also really learn better through the practical route of learning, that's when they should be moved towards the vocational apprenticeship route. If there are other occupations, or actually I learn better through um, the HE academic route, that's the route they should go. On internships, I've seen internships. Some are brilliant. I would describe them as brilliant work experience opportunities. And the more we can get work experience, the more we will develop the employability skills of those young people. I've also seen it abused, and I have to say, perhaps slightly controversially, in the creative cultural sector where there is a real demand for uh, graduates to go into those sectors, and some employers have kept people unpaid for six, nine months as unpaid you know, uh, workhorses, and then at the end said, well, actually, we've had five interns, you're the best, we'll take you and get you a permanent job. I think internships, perfect for work experience, not good to exploit young people. Simon, uh, Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm coming to talk to you from the perspective of uh, Taylor Bennett and the foundation that we've set up, which is uh, around internships to um, 
address the issue of underrepresentation of uh, minority ethnic groups in the communications industry. So there's a very sort of specific angle. Taylor Bennett uh, partners uh, with clients to find them senior communications professionals who will deliver uh, their corporate aims and therefore we serve the communications industry as a whole uh, and therefore have a a vested interest in this industry being professionalised, hence understanding that it has an underrepresentation issue uh, matters to us enormously and and this is the sort of reason why we've set up our internship programme. Um, We've been running our internship programme since 2008 and have learned an enormous amount in that uh, period. Um, One of the the things that we do is over 10 weeks, we uh, invite six talented uh, graduates to um, take part in our uh, paid internship, during which they learn everything from uh, communication skills, be it presentations, uh, they go and visit corporates and government departments and learn from their communications teams on what, what a communication strategy might look like, how do you write a press release, um, how do you write a blog. Uh, we also provide them with uh, English language uh, training, which, which was something that we learned as we went along. Communications uh, requires people to be very uh, articulate uh, and very good at, at written English. And what we were surprised to discover was that our very talented graduates often uh, wrote emails that were riddled with errors, uh, and therefore we introduced you know, teaching English uh, as part of our, of our internship program. Um, they also have uh, weekly uh, presentations that they have to give around a, a specific topic, and we invite uh, people from the communications industry as a whole uh, to, to sort of view their presentations and give them immediate feedback. Um, and the final component uh, is uh, sort of employability. To, to pick up on, on your point, you know, Taylor Bennett, we're, we're a, we work in careers. We, we chart people's careers uh, at the full span from sort of junior to senior level. Uh, and we, we therefore can add value in this domain. So we help them with writing their CVs. We help them in terms of their interview technique. Chantal here in the audience helps them with etiquette, you know, everything from how to shake hands, how to, um, you know, look people in the eye, how to thank them for their time. And many of these skills... Uh, wouldn't have occurred to our interns, which was a really invaluable learning uh, lesson for us, that if you teach people the, t- the tools, it inspires enormous amounts of confidence in them. And having spoken to interns now, we've, we've come close to uh, 50 alumni of our programme. And um, what, what is always coming through is what they say is, yes, you, you taught us valuable skills, those were fantastic, but I'm now confident enough to embrace my career. I now have broader ambitions. And, you know, I used to look at the big shiny buildings in the city and think, not for me, but now I believe I can. Um, and so that's been tremendously inspiring for us all at Taylor Bennett. Uh, uh, you know, we're a small company. Um, we're all he- in- incredibly involved in the programme, giving up our time um, and our energies and trying to inspire these uh, uh, talented graduates to go and reach for the stars, essentially. And so, you know, having... As a small business, you know, we're into our fourth year now. We're going to have 18 graduates uh, come through the programme this year in London and six uh, in in near Leeds. And our ambition is to scale up this programme so that we're having 100 graduate the programme each year across the country. And then we would very much hope that we really can quite literally changed the face of the the communications industry. But clearly, we're a very small business, and and we rely enormously on the help of our partners. 
we pay our interns, which is, uh, we believe, absolutely essential uh, for fair, fair access and uh, social mobility. And, um, you know, I was looking at our, our cost before I came to speak to you here today. And for each programme of six interns, to take them across ten weeks, their salaries and NI and travel costs alone cost us £20,000. And if you look at that, for each run of internship and you scale it up across the country, that's a tremendous cost to a small business such as ours. And we, we've been very fortunate to gather um, interest from partners. So we've had, uh, you know, Brunswick was our original partner, and they've generously uh, given up their time and money, uh, and also Talk PR is a recent partner, and we're getting more and more interest, and we believe that the way to address this industry-wide issue is to corral the partnership of, of interested bodies within that industry. And so, you know, we continue to solicit and, you know, receive the help of corporate partners who invite interns into their offices, teach them, give up a half-day to do so, or mentor alumni of the programme across their careers, which, again, is a fantastic thing to be able to do for them, uh, but also, you know, donate funds and partner with us to deliver uh, the internship. Um, and so that's very much, you know, what we think is important. Thank you. Fascinating. <laughs> I think uh, Laurie Penny is going to go next. Apologies, I called you Laura. Sorry, Sorry, that's actually my name. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hi, so um, I'm basically here to speak uh, in my capacity as a journalist who writes about internships but also... We don't want you to talk. Censorship! speech! But also as a former intern, uh, I did uh, my last internship at the end of 2008 for The Independent on Sunday. Uh, before that I was an intern at the Fabian Society and briefly at the Times, uh, which um, I got through a work through my uh, NCQJ training course. And um, I think uh, what I'd first like to say is, um, well, um, with, with greatest respect to the two previous speakers and, I, and to us being in the uh, Department for Business Innovation Skills, I'm not particularly concerned with what the market wants or with what employers want or with whether or not our internship system means that we can, we can compete better with Germany. You know, I'm, I'm concerned with having a country and a job market that's fair and that doesn't crush people's life chances. So um, I think there are three uh, main strands of thought here which you know, contribute to this whole mess because the internship system is a complete mess on every single count. Um, the first is, as has been mentioned briefly already, is that it's unfair to the interns involved, uh, which is, you know, one of the things that people who are interns and activists complain about most is that, you know, being forced to do unpaid work, sometimes for extended periods of time, um, especially in a job market like this where you can't walk out of an internship into a job, you just can't. Many people, um, like myself, uh, find ourselves unable to find work and hang around doing internships. I think I must have spent about a year in combination with doing other stuff, um, doing, doing different internships and, you know, doing a lot of work, um, which in some ways uh, was very, very, it was very, very diff different to tell the difference between the people who were doing that work for free and the people who were being paid to do that work, apart from the people who were being paid had probably a little bit more investment in doing it properly because they were being treated as human beings and as workers rather than as people who were there on sufferance. 
And uh, this book actually explains really, really well. Um, most of it is about the exploitation of interns within the system. But I think it's also um, really, really important and obvious, but really important to talk about why the internship system is unfair to everyone else and to people who can't afford internships. Because um, when you say unpaid internship, it talks, it, it's, um, you know, you're speaking about exploitation, unpaid labour, you know, people being uh, blackmailed into doing this work for free, basically. But there are a lot of people out there who can't afford to be exploited in that way. You know, being exploited, being an intern is exploitation, but it's also under the current, current system, it's a privilege, and you have to remember that. Um, so I, I was very aware because, um, and one of the reasons I feel so strongly about this is uh, while I was doing my own internships, um, I was living in a large house with a lot of friends from university, most of whom couldn't afford to do unpaid internships, which I was, ma- I was able to fund myself through the internships because um, my grandmother died and left me a small amount of money. And I decided to spend that rather than, you know, putting it in savings or anything or, you know, having a buffer. I decided to spend that on doing internships because there was clearly no other way to get a job. Um, But and uh, my friends weren't so lucky. And so while I was doing these, I was doing these internships and getting my skills up to speed and doing a training course, um, they were all sitting at home desperately trying to find a job. Um, all these gateways to the careers we all thought we were going to have at university uh, were closed to them because they couldn't afford to buy their way in. And, you know, I kind of watched over the course of a year and a half uh, many of my closest friends sort of slide further into that kind of interminable soup of joblessness and depression. And so I'm now in a situation where... Um, I'm probably the only one of my close friends from university from that group who has any job at all at the moment. No, no, uh, it doesn't matter, um, you know, a kind of career in journalism or whatever. And I'm, I'm the least talented of them, I am. I really, no, I really, um, and that's one of the things that's so tragic to me because, um, you know, we were one of those uh, groups at university. I just remember being 19 and thinking, oh, my God, we're all so brilliant, you know. We're going to be great. We're going to take over the world, and you're going to be a journalist, and you're going to be a novelist, and you're going to work in Parliament, and you're going to be a Tory, but that's OK. <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, everyone came... And now, you know, I think about three years later, you know, one of them works for a call centre, a couple are unemployed, um, and it's just and it's just me... And the only difference between me and the rest of my friends is that I was able to afford those internships. It is stupendously unfair. It's a monstrously unfair system, and we need to be standing up and challenging it. And um, it creates a two-tier system whereby uh, the privilege that was meant to be erased... Uh, and, you know, I, th- I would agree um, with the first speaker um, that there are, there are problems with making everyone go through the university system as the only way to get vocational skills, right? But um, one of the principles behind that, apart from erasing youth unemployment um, and muddling the figures, was to, um, you know, erase that privileged barrier of going to university. Now, that privilege reasserts itself after university when the children of the rich are able to buy their way through the doors of privilege. Um, and that's the main point I wanted to make. I think it's really, really important that that fact is at the heart of our discussions, you know, not just what employers need, because young people are not just raw materials for business. You know, we're people, and we need to be treated as worthwhile human beings. And um, with greatest respect to Faye, um, I do hear this young people can't spell um, myth 
bandied around quite a lot. And I don't think there's any you know, concrete cause to say that young people have less employability skills now than they did 30 years ago. Yeah, I mean, the, the, there is no employability crisis in this country. Okay, there is no employability crisis in this country. There is a jobs crisis in this country. Right? There are no jobs for young people. We have a million unemployed. The problem is not that young people can't spell or that young people are too rubbish to get a job. The problem is that there are no jobs and the jobs that there are are being given to the sons and daughters of the wealthy. Right? And <laughs> the last point is, um, is a short point, which is uh, we focus a lot on the interns and on the people, and we focus, you know, Finally, on the people who don't get to become interns. Uh, but we don't often turn our, our kind of eye of critique onto the employers and what the internship system does uh, to, uh, to the job system in politics, in journalism, and, um, and the possibilities for corruption there. And there was a big um, scandal around uh, people in the Conservative Party and people who went to that black and white ball uh, buying their sons and daughters internships and then, you know, coming out a few months later saying, this is wrong, you know, you can't do it. And, you know, auctions, you know, I was at Oxford University where I used to go. Uh, one of my friends who's still there sent me uh, details of this uh, red and white gala ball that they held. Um, I think it was uh, to raise money for AIDS awareness. But, they were, yeah, they, they did the same. They auctioned internships, some of which went for 25 grand. And that's the way you get, you know, a job in media or politics at the moment, or law, lots of uh, law internships, which are, are as... as um, I mean, law is one that is particularly bad because um, in law, unpaid labour is the only way you can get in. You know, it's the only way. Um, pupillage, things like that, you can auction pupillages. Um, but the possibilities for corruption are also more sinister. Um, at the moment, um, there's an ongoing scandal of uh, Christian fundamentalists, pro-life charities, um, paying hundreds of thousands of pounds a year, well, I think it's about 000, a little over £100,000 a year, to place interns with MPs and top people at NGOs. And I mean, I've, I've written about this before. The Independent covered it um, a few years ago. But it's not really being recognised enough that people are gaming the system for their own political advantage. This is absolutely... It's absolutely wrong. It's immoral. It's corrupt. Um, the use of, you know, and David Lammy has one of these at the moment. Tim Farron from the Lib Dems. It's not just a Tory thing. You know, it's... Uh, sorry, I... I I, I'm, I'm used to speaking to left-wing audiences. <laughs> please, please forgive me. Um, but, I mean, with, with greatest respect to um, any Tories in the... No, but, you know, I forgive you. <laughs> but, um, yeah, gaming the system is um, a really, really important thing that doesn't get taken into account. And the fact that you can buy your way into positions of influence, the fact that you, the fact that you can buy... But, but also the fact that you can buy that influence, because what it means for employers, even in a situation where you don't have corruption is that employers and politicians and top journalists are surrounded all the time with the sons and daughters of wealthy people. They're surrounded by upper-middle-class, bourgeois, young people who may be perfectly nice, but it gives people in positions of power a different understanding of what young people are and what the world is like for young people. Because if, you, um, if, if all the young people you meet um, on a day-to-day -day basis are posh, then 
you're not going to maybe believe what you read in the newspapers about, oh, there being an employment crisis, there being, you know, young people having a terrible time with mental health difficulties, with work, with education. You know, if all the young people you meet on a daily basis are privileged, that affects employers too. It doesn't just affect young people. And I remember when I worked for the Fabian Society, who were lovely people, and they are lovely people, they treated me very nicely, but, like... um, People at Cinder Catwala coming down and, you know, asking me because I was, you know, the nearest, youngest person, you know, what do you think about this? And, you know, I, I actually have quite a lot, but I, I have quite a lot of, of opinions on most things. But um, also, <laughs> as, as, as some may have noticed, but um, I just thought, you know, if that's what's happening, if that's, you know, if people who are making these decisions and writing policy for, for you know, advising politicians are coming down and talking to their interns as the voice of youth then that's a problem. It's a real problem. And, um, and then buying those... Sorry, I'll, I'll stop now. But, um, the, um, but buying... And obviously some people have recognised that that's important and are kind of using the system to surround people, surround uh, decision-makers with their own people. So I wanted to flag that up as an issue. So that's... <laughs> Thank you. Lots of issues there that I'm sure we'll come back to. Um, Gemma. Well, being from an investment bank, <laughs> I'm not sure if we're going to be having a coffee afterwards. Um, but um, I'm, I've got to start with the numbers, haven't I? You wouldn't expect anything else. Um, we're one of the largest banks in the world. We've got around a quarter of a million employees. And it's absolutely critical for us that we have what we call a flow of junior talent into the bank. That always makes my husband laugh, because for him, talent is something entirely different. Um, <laughs> We've got a range of schemes around the world, apprenticeships, uh, careers academies for disadvantaged 16 to 19-year-olds, but our principal schemes are our internships and our graduate schemes, and that's what I'm going to talk about today. So as the recruiter on the panel, I wanted to give you some sense of scale. For my region, which is the European uh, region, so Europe, Middle East and Africa, we get about 50,000 applications for 450 jobs and 300 internships. So I'll just leave those numbers with you for a second. So effectively, 14,000 or so of those 50,000 are for internships. So we get about 50 applications for every internship we have. So unfair as it seems, we need our interns to be very upskilled before they even apply. And in investment banking, uh, internships are our single biggest recruiting mechanism. We see internships effectively as the way that we can identify the best talent in the marketplace. Um, Effectively, our internships are a a 10-week job interview. Um, And just to give you a sense of what these poor interns are up against, um, applying for an internship is almost as rigorous as a full-time job. They submit a CV and a covering letter, which will screen. If they pass that stage, they'll be invited to take online numerical tests and logical tests. If they pass those, they'll be telephone interviewed at least two times. They'll then be invited to an assessment centre where they'll be observed during group exercises, case studies, presentations, and have free one-on-one interviews with seniors in our business. And if they pass that stage and still have the will to live, then we will offer them an internship. But what an internship. Uh, Very disappointing to hear uh, about poor experiences, unpaid experiences. That's absolutely not the case in an investment bank. Uh, Our internships are between eight and ten weeks long over the summer. They'll get common training. They'll get soft skills training. A couple of examples. We've got a panel of senior people talking about what I wish I'd known when I was 20. Um, We've got an economist talking about what the world economy will look like in 30 years' time when we're all retired and those interns are running the bank. 
We have social activities, dragon boat racing, drinking, all the things that uh, make uh, a 20-hour day palatable. And they're paid extremely well. Usually we pro to what their full-time salary would be, anywhere between 33 and £45,000 a year. And at the end of the internship, we decide whether to make them an offer or not, and the lucky ones decide whether they want to join or not. So internships uh, for us are pretty tough to get, but well worth it. So what are we looking for? Now, I'm focusing here on our graduate internships as opposed to apprenticeships or other schemes. So strong academic credentials for us are a given. UCAS points are just as important for us as degrees. And, um, you know, this is where I think the unfairness comes in, and I admit this. We know which universities provide us with the best interns year on year, and although we accept applications and we hire from all kinds of universities, those are the universities that we proactively target. Contrary to popular opinion, we're not just looking for maths and economics students. Can I ask what those universities are? Uh, LSE, Warwick would be two Mm -hmm. examples. Part of it is that we're not particularly interested in hiring British people. We're we're a very global bank, so we go to international um, universities in the UK, which have a lot of international students, as well as Cairo, Paris, um, Frankfurt, etc. And what we're looking for in an application for an internship is a genuine passion for our industry. And up to that point, typically UK students do quite well. But it's face-to-face that I think our UK students need the most help. What separates one candidate from another sometimes comes down to something really simple, like the ability to make small talk with colleagues at a networking event or confidence in selling yourself, some of the points that have been made before. Um, Simple breaches in business etiquette, which we take for granted, looking people in the eye, not tweeting during a presentation, not saying thank you after an interview, choosing the right moment to challenge a speaker, looking smart. When you have a pool of extraordinary young talent in front of you, it can be really tiny things that make the difference between getting an internship or not getting an internship, getting a job or not getting a job. In my view, therefore, the single biggest thing that career services and other bodies um, like Martin's could do for British students is to help them with softer things, how to shake hands, how to make a great first impression, how to come across confidently, how to hold a conversation with someone you don't know, showing you've got the right attitude and passion, demonstrating that you really want the job. These are the things that really matter. Martin? Thank you very much. Um, Okay, well, I'm not against internships. Um, That may come as a surprise to some people in the room, but uh, I I I don't like the word. Uh, I think it's a kind of horrible, embarrassing Americanism. Uh, uh, And it's become associated with, it's become a kind of euphemism for free labour and exploitation. But the concept, the good old-fashioned British concept of work experience is fine. Why don't we just call it work experience? Um, Because in a fair world, this is about a fair exchange. An employer on one side gives generously of time, contacts, and uh, experience, and the young person on the other side gives a small amount of their labour. This strikes me as being relatively fair um, within a kind of capitalist market economy, which is what we, after all, live in. Um, unfortunately, this fair exchange system is not what we have today. It, it just isn't operating like that. What we have is quite simply the systematic exploitation of a whole generation. 
And they, as Laurie has pointed out, are the lucky ones. The people being exploited are the lucky ones. Now, we have a serious, serious cultural problem here. Uh, and it's not helped by the attitude of our senior politicians. Let's remind us, as I like to remind people of this particular quote from a cabinet minister as many times as I can, kind of drawing on the kind of lessons of, of Peter Madelson that you have to drill home points to people until the point that they are screaming for mercy and then you know that you're winning. So here is this quote that I, I, I kind of bring out on these occasions time and time again. And it comes from Philip Hammond, the richest man in the cabinet. I mean, the richest man in, you have to say, the richest cabinet in some time. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, let's, let's carry on this theme. Probably a very nice man. Um, <laughs> uh, and he said, I would regard it, when he was challenged on a very lengthy free internship that he had advertised, uh, I would regard it as an abuse of taxpayer funding to pay for something that is available for nothing. Now just think about that for a moment. Uh, this is Philip Halland. He is a cabinet minister. He is supposed to be setting an example. Um, now, the reality is that Philip Halland's kind of right. You know, in an in a, in a absolute free market economy, why should he? Um, in that kind of brutal moral universe, why should an employer pay for something that it can get for free? Well, first of all, Mr. Hammond, it's illegal. So, you know, I'm sorry, we do not operate in uh, an, a, a totally, uh, a total free-for-all. Uh, what you are proposing is illegal. There is minimum wage legislation, which means that employers are uh, required by law to pay people for their labour. Um, but beyond that... Um, I would argue, uh, and I would hope that Gemma would agree with me, that even in a market, even in a brutal market economy, if what you're doing is building your bottom line on free labour, then you are not a sustainable business. Uh, and uh, those who are building into their costings uh, free labour should, should understand this. And then the most important for me, the most important point for me is the point... Uh, of social justice, it is quite clear that in certain sectors of the economy, uh, and I have to say I agree um, that the creative sector is one of the worst, uh, it's quite impossible to break in unless you have the ability to work for free and live for free, ideally with your parents, and ideally in London. This cannot be right. Now, at New Deal of the Mind... Uh, we have some very real evidence of the difference it makes if you pay people, if you pay people for their labour. Um, working within the creative industries, which is absolutely appalling. I mean, I came, I came from journalism, which is pretty bad. Uh, but when you start going into meetings with people from the creative industries and you see these kind of just swathes and swathes of white middle-class faces, um, it is uh, quite shocking. I mean, not in a kind of 80s kind of, kind of, kind of loony lefty kind of way. It's just kind of, sh in just a very kind of centrist, kind of new labour kind of way. You know. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> um, and, you know, what we did, quite simply, is working with the Future Jobs Fund, we paid people part-time for six months uh, at national minimum wage, and it completely transformed the companies that we were working with. Uh, are the early evidence from our scheme, which placed 800 people 
into jobs across the country is that 60% of our employees came from black and ethnic minority backgrounds, 60%. Uh, and we were recruiting from the long-term unemployed, certainly initially from long-term unemployed. So what does that say about uh, the kind of social mess we're creating for ourselves if we are leaving that kind of uh, talent on the dole? Um, at Somerset House, where we now work, where one employer actually said to me uh, that they would, prefer to ex- uh, they, they would prefer to employ nice young girls from Oxbridge than anyone from our scheme because they came free and they came job-ready. I mean, absolutely shameless they were in saying that. Government-funded organisation, by the way. Um, we have completely changed the culture of Somerset House. Uh, there are now, for the first time, in Somerset House, black faces that aren't working on the security desk. Now, what other organisations here can claim that, I do wonder. So what do we do to change this completely inequitable system? Uh, in one sense, there's nothing we can do. In one sense, the middle classes will always want to do the best for their children and it would be absurd to stop them trying to do that. Um, But we can begin to open up uh, opportunities for others, which is why I'm so passionate about the Talent to Work uh, project that we are um, embarking on with editorial intelligence. Uh, I don't mind providing opportunities for middle-class people. Again, that may surprise people. Uh, As long as other people are not being unduly held back, which is why with Talent to Work, effectively we are creating a bursary system where people who can afford to pay are paying at a premium to allow people from less fortunate backgrounds to uh, take part in the Talent to Work networking club. Um, We should also turn the logic of internships on its head. By all means, provide work experience uh, for people who do not have that experience. Uh, But... I would urge employers to think about using internships to give opportunities to young people who wouldn't otherwise have those opportunities rather than giving those opportunities to their friends and family. The third thing we can do is already happening and it is putting the fear of God into employers, particularly in the sector that I work in, and that is retrospective cases being brought, particularly by the NUJ Uh, And I really salute them for this. It's an absolutely ingenious idea. Uh, For a long time, people working within uh, the kind of campaigning within this area were saying, well, how do you get interns who are being exploited, who are being employed illegally, to take cases against their employer? Of course, you can't. You can't because they're they're scared of losing their internship. Um, But what you can do is you can take the cases once they've gone. And the fact that employers now don't know whether that person who's coming through their company that they are exploiting might take a case against them afterwards is really, really frightening people. And it's brilliant. I mean, I've heard employers across the creative sector say, have you heard what's happening? What are we going to do? We're going to have to change our whole employment practice. Brilliant. That's really good. And fourthly, actually, I think the banks have a responsibility. Now, we have paid for the bailout of the banks, and I think they need to put something back. There's a very obvious way in which they can do this, and that is to rescue the Future Jobs Fund. The Future Jobs Fund has been cut by this government. It's a complete disgrace. It is completely ideological, and it's a big mistake. They're replacing it with nothing. 
The single work programme with which they're replacing it will do very little for young people, and we are going to end up with a really serious crisis here. Now, we have the costings. We know how much it costs to put people back into work, and it does cost a lot. Uh, but I would urge the banking sector to, to come to the aid of this generation right now, and it's a very obvious way of putting something back. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Um, well, we've got time for discussion now. Does anyone want to, um, to ask for... Oh, there's a few here. All right. <laughs> Thoughts of participants. Okay, we have to start here. Could you give your name and yes. where you're from? Hello, my name's Paul De Zilueta. Um I run an organisation called LifeStep, which helps young people become employable. Um, the title of this morning was How Do We Skill Up Young People to Get Jobs? I'm afraid to say none of the panel has addressed that. They've just put forward their own personal agendas, and I'd like some practical answers to that question. Um, okay, people... We'll do that one first. Let's, um, let's start the rest Sorry, I thought, you wanted, I thought you wanted to take some questions. Well, um, but, I mean, Paul, you're absolutely right in my case. I think that's slightly unfair on the other panellists, some of whom did actually address precisely that point uh, in terms of soft skills and in terms of, of the, training, the training they give people. Um, you know what? Um, I think we talk too much and we get too hung up on the idea of, uh, of the preparation that we need to give people for work. Um, it's actually a cop-out. It's actually an easy way out. It's also a very good way for lots of training companies to make enormous amounts of money. Uh, because as long as we uh, peddle this idea that people are, are unskilled and untrained and that the school system is failing us, uh, then um, you know, we will all, there will always be money for people to, to, to move into that space. I think we need to give people jobs. And, you know, our experience of, of working with 800 people across the country is what transforms people's lives is having a routine, getting up in the morning, being respected, having their labour paid for. And that is what we need to work towards. Simon, you've got some views on... Um, yeah, very much so. I mean, how to um, give them the right skills? Well, Martin has just described very beautifully and very succinctly what an apprenticeship is. Mm. Apprenticeship is a real job. It's a paid job. You have to pay for it. In the past, up until March, April of this year, only a couple months ago, there were what were, were called program-led apprenticeships, which were you know, sort of work experience and going to college a bit. Um, we've now changed that. And I can tell you one of the primary reasons I'm involved in apprenticeships when... I was part of British Gas. I met you know, hundreds of 16 to 19-year-olds we took on, and it transformed their lives in the way that yeah, Martin just said. And I think the real issue is, actually, skills is part of the problem, but the fundamental problem you know, is the point is made, we need jobs, we need real jobs. And, yeah, and I spend most of my life going around the country with my colleagues, persuading employers of all shapes, sizes, across all industries, including the creative and cultural, accountancy, you name it, to take that step of employing another young person into a proper job and putting them on apprenticeship 
and apprenticeships does change individuals' lives, and whether some of this panel like it or not, it also transforms the efficiency and productivity of those businesses they work in because they are more skilled at the end of it. So how we skill them up, I think one of the best routes, not the only route, is apprenticeships. That's why I'm spending my life doing it because it makes a real difference. So that is the practical answer to your question. Um, yeah, I, 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 would, uh, I, I would completely agree. I think that um, it's really, really important to not fall into this trap of saying, you know, the reason that, you know, we've got a crisis in skills at the moment. I think that's complete nonsense. I think young people, most of the young people I see around me and most of the young people I know are extremely hardworking. They've had to be because they've done about 10, 15 different sets of exams since they were seven you know, to get just to get to university, um, if they've gone to university, and it's um, to, we, we've somehow got to this stage where employers and businesses don't see employees as people; they see them as products that they can kind of hire and buy. There's there's no there's no sense anymore that a business or an office or a workplace is a place full of people doing a job together. You know, people are just services that you hire. And why would you hire someone who's 20 or 18 who might not have the requisite skills already? I mean, the reason those people don't have the skills that other people in the office have is because they're 18 or 20. You know, it's, it's really, really simple. You know, you can't expect people to walk out of school or university as fully formed, really good employees. You know, some of them will, but some of them won't. I mean, with my internships, um, I actually found them not one jot as helpful altogether that whole year. I learned more in my first three days of the first job I actually got than in all those internships, you know, actually being employed is, makes the difference, and we need to start giving people those chances. You know, I just repeat what I said earlier, is there is not an employability crisis, there's an employment crisis, and that's what we need to tackle. I'm going to take three questions now. Um, hello, my name's Robin Kennedy, I run a company called Rexo Work Experience Online, um, which matches uh, employers with um, employees and interns in the creative industries. Um, I think everyone here is probably actually on the same side. I think we all agree that um, it's all about getting young people good jobs and inspiring them, etc. To my mind, it's a question of education, and that's on three levels. One, we have to educate and inspire companies to take people on, to pay them fairly, etc. I think there needs to be an education as to the difference between work experience, internships, apprenticeships, and jobs, because very few of them know the difference. Um, the second thing is to um, educate young people as to what's on offer and all the very worthwhile institutions here and companies. Um, we work with kids' company, we work with Fishburne Hedges, etc. Um, so we need to educate young people and, and help find a forum for all of us to promote the opportunities that are on offer. Um, and the third thing is there is a problem with the education system in the UK, and much as I agree that there are a whole host of young people around who are very well qualified for internships, etc., we do see in the workplace a lot of people who are unskilled, and so I think there is uh, a responsibility of the education system to prepare people better. Um, for my sins, I was an investment banker for five years, but I would like to say that the banks are partly responsible. Um, there is an onus on them perhaps to invest less in their interns and perhaps subsidise companies that can't afford to pay interns. Yeah. But let's not forget that the banks in this country contribute a huge proportion of GDP. And without them, this country would be in an even bigger mess than it is already. Thank you.
One immediately behind in there. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Sophie Gunter, I know that we're talking about young people, but I think we have to talk about the other end of the life stage, where people who... There is ageism in jobs as well. And people who come out of jobs, especially when they need to be reskilled, um, maybe not in London, who are struggling to find places in the workplace as well, may be fighting for the same pay jobs at different ages and also need skilling. And I just think that there should be a discussion of both the whole range of life and finding jobs and that challenge as well as the challenge at the, at the entry point because actually 20-year-olds are easier, find it easier to find jobs than a 50-year-old. And now we're all working until we're 75 or 80. Um, we need to think about that as part of the whole discussion. Mm-hmm. Okay, and there's one, one here. Mm-hmm. Um, Owen Jones on the author of Chav's Demonisation of the Working Class. Um, we've talked a lot about how uh, unpaid internships, the great injustice of unpaid internships have turned professions into closed shops for the middle classes. But do you think what's missing here is the legacy, the continued legacy of deindustrialisation um, in large waves of the country? Uh, we had entire communities that were sustained by manufacturing or mining, for example. Uh, in those communities, there were large numbers of paid, uh, skilled apprenticeships, certainly for young men, obviously. Uh, the vacuum has now been filled by fewer jobs. Uh, they're lower paid, they're less secure and they often have less prestige, like call centres, supermarkets, um, or the public sector, which is now obviously under attack. Uh, So don't the panel think that actually what we need in these communities is an active industrial strategy by the government to bring good, well-paid, secure jobs um, uh, to those communities, um, especially which is where, obviously, uh, youth unemployment is particularly concentrated? Okay, that's a pretty wide range of questions there. Um, Hey, do you want to pick up any of that? I'm thinking, particularly in the early discussion as well, you, you, your experience with, um, with, with finding that, that, that there were problems of literacy skills uh, and employability skills. What did you, have you, from that, have you drawn any broader conclusions and, uh, uh, about the sort of role of education system and the role of employers and whether there is a skills gap, skills problem? Mm. I, I, w- I would say that there, there can be. Uh, there, there, there isn't always. Uh, and, you know, Laurie's a, a fine example of someone who's incredibly articulate. But we have... Um, we, our first original partner was with the University of East London, and the reason we um, approached them was because there was a very high percentage of diverse graduates uh, or undergraduates. And, and that was the very simple arrangement that we had, uh, given the nature of our programme, and um, it was actually on the second run of our internship that we introduced the English uh, classes because the communications industry requires very um, capable sort of writing skills and uh, it requires people to interact very well together and communicate very clearly. Um, so in order for these graduates to have a, a fighting chance in the job market afterwards, we wanted them to be best equipped and that's where the English training came in. So, you know, th- there are some very basic elements of, you know, where to put the apostrophe, which they didn't know, uh, some of them. Um, Apostrophes. To, yeah. What a problem. I yeah. still struggle. If Johnny. Honest. Johnny, mate. Yeah. <laughs> to, um, <laughs> um, uh, to, you know, sort of writing a really good blog or writing a really good uh, press release, you know, what, how to structure an argument and so on. So, so we have discovered that to, 
we, that part of the training we provide does focus on employability, you know, how to conduct yourself, picking up on Gemma's point, you know, how to look somebody in the eye, shake their hand. Um, we know our clients uh, and we know what they will be looking for in the graduates that they would seek to employ. And essentially what we've been trying to do is to think of all those elements and incorporate it into our training programme so that these grads have the best chance possible. And the other sort of angle, uh, you know, yes, there, of course there have to be more jobs, um, but, you know, in the current market and how it operates, what, what can we do? I do believe that industry-wide you need to focus on partnerships and uh, work together to address the issue that, that is in your industry and inspire companies to want to uh, bring young, uh, young talent on board and to train them up. So from Taylor Bennett's perspective, what we've discovered in doing this is that, you know, in our it feels a bit grand to use this language, but it's effectively our corporate responsibility programme. It gives us a USB in terms of our competitors. It enables um, our more junior members of staff to have the opportunity to provide training and coaching to the interns that come through, so it's a professional development opportunity for them. And, you know, most, most sort of visibly, I guess, internally, it's in our employee engagement Program. We're all incredibly motivated and proud to be part of this. And these are not the things that we thought at the very beginning, but now we see them. And so it's served our business very well. So I guess that educating of businesses, of how it will help them, is a, is a very sort of valid way forward. Okay, thanks. Uh... Gemma, the um, the banks are they um, are they, are they um, responsible still for responsible for yeah. um, the whole problem, and uh, <laughs> can they do more than supply their own needs? Uh, well, I'm not going to get into what um, the head of our bank should or shouldn't um, look at from that respect. What I would say is that I think that we are fortunate as a large corporate in being able to offer a range of schemes, and I think that's. A really important point. So I think uh, we have an academy, for example, which is for 16 to 19-year-olds, which is a paid six-week summer scheme. And we, our expectations of the children, some of them are at, at 15, 16 applying, is completely different from what we would expect from a graduate of the LSE on one of our internships. And I think having a range of schemes um, to hit different um, sectors of the population is really critical. So um, for us, we, we make quite clear differentiation between our expectations of um, students from the surrounding area around Canary Wharf, Tower Hamlets and so on coming in for their summer internship at 16 than we would from somebody who has, is, is an LSE graduate. Um, Yes, there is crossover. Yeah, there is some crossover, but not as much as we'd like. Mm. Coming back to the diversity point, in a sense, the large corporate graduate internship schemes are too late because we're recruiting from the graduate pool, which is already itself <coughs> incredibly narrow, um, and we find that a particular challenge. So we've invested in some um, what we call positive attraction schemes. We, we clearly can't um, positively discriminate, but we have schemes aimed at women. We have a partnership with an organisation called SEO to attract young black and minority ethnic candidates to the bank. Um, and in some of those, we work with disability organisations um, so we can try and encourage more people with disabilities to see banking as a, a, as a sector they'd like to go into. But the truth is that if you're already fishing in the graduate pool, as we are for our graduate schemes, then actually we're already, let's be honest, fishing in a very middle-class pool already. Thanks very much. Anyone, anyone say anything? Or shall I take some more questions? Uh, uh, can yeah. I say something? Is that all right, though? Yeah. 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 Um, 
using my soft skills there. Do you see that? Um, the, um, I, mean, no, no, I mean, there's so many, so many things you could say about each of these questions. Uh, can I just deal with the deindustrialization point first? Um, I think this is an extremely important point, and I think it's something that policymakers have completely missed out of the equation. Um, I don't want to bash cabinet ministers, um, so I'll go for a junior minister now. Um, Chris Grayling at uh, Conservative Party conference just before the last election um, was confronted by uh, a number of uh, big service providers that are going to be delivering work creation in, in, in the future. These are you know, people like Serco and A4E and Group 4, all these kind of massive corporations. Um, and they said, um, look, Chris, because uh, they called him Chris, um, look, Chris, uh, couldn't, um, we've got a problem here because you're asking us to provide jobs, but there are whole parts of the country that don't have any jobs. You know, there is no job supply in you know, places like Hull and Burnley and these places where there are really serious issues with unemployment. What, what do you want us to do in these places? And he said, ah, yeah, um, hadn't thought of that. Uh, well, uh, yeah, people are going to have to set up their own businesses. Brilliant. Well, you know, in a sense, he's right. He's right. I mean, that, that is probably what people are going to have to do. And in fact, looking back to the, the last serious economic crisis, it was precisely what happened in those kinds of areas, is that, in fact, often by, with the help of uh, local Labour councils, because Labour tend to control those areas, uh, people did set up their own businesses, and some of them became very successful. In fact, one of them is called A4E, uh, that set up in Sheffield to deal with the, uh, with the, the crisis in the, in the steel industry there. Um, so, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right, and, you know, the more that we can lobby ministers to think about those kinds of areas, the, the better. Um, on the issue of ageism, uh, I, think, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and, that, you know, it's another issue um, that needs to be dealt with in terms of diversity in the workforce. Uh, I remember when I was working at The Observer, there was a, a guy called Bob Beale who was... Uh, 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 he just retired from being uh, a lawyer and he wanted to change track and wanted to become a journalist. And so he got and done his NCTJ training and he needed uh, to do uh, an internship. So he came with his little bow tie and sat in our conferences and provided an incredibly interesting kind of new, uh, new perspective on, uh, on uh, you know, the, the way we were working. Uh, how did he get his internship? Well, he played cricket with my dad. So it's kind of like exactly the same, but the other way around. Um, and uh, on the issue of skills, well, I mean, look, uh, I, I'm, sure there, I'm sure there is a problem. Um, uh, it, 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 but one thing I think that we do need to address, and it's been, it's been touched on in the panel, is, uh, and it's very interesting that, uh, that you work with the University of East London, um, one of the problems that we've identified is that a lot of the people that were coming through the New Deal of Mind scheme were from these new universities. They bought the idea that you did the right thing, you did your A-levels, you behaved yourself, you went to university, you got a degree, came out the other side, and then they found that they were unemployable because nobody respects degrees from those universities. This is a huge problem. And anecdotally, we're already finding from interviews we're doing with people leaving uh, New Deal of the Mind that a lot of young people are saying, the one thing I wish... Uh, is that I never went to university. And this is, and this is an issue, actually, for the outgoing Labour government. I think that trying to hit those targets of 50% of people going through university was an admirable idea, but it has been uh, a serious failure. Okay.
Hi, my name is Theodora Clark. Um, I used to work for Huxley Associates, the recruiter in America, and I now work with LifeStep, also helping graduates and students. Um, one of the points that you all picked up on was this idea of fairness and access to internships. Um, but I think the thing that's been lacking is, Gemma, you explained very articulately the very long application process to work for your bank, um, which is great, but how many actually 17, 18-year-olds or 23-year-olds actually have a good CV or have ever been to an interview? Um, and there's a real problem at the moment with both schools and universities that there's a lack of sort of careers guidance and helping them with the actual application process. So um, I think Martin's absolutely right. They do have a good degree and they've you know, been to university, but actually if they haven't been told while you're at university, make sure you do something extracurricular like drama or sport, make sure you do um, you know, a week's work experience shadowing someone, even if it's for a day or two if you can't afford longer. They just are not being given the right information to know if you want to apply for an internship at City, having a first is not you know, going to get you a job. It's all those other things you've done during your extracurricular activities at school and at university. So I'd quite like to hear as well from Simon about apprenticeships and from sort of the government perspective, you know, how is the government actually going to help students to build those skills so that they can get onto these internship programmes in the first place? Thanks. Uh, two down here. Thanks. I'm Hilly James. I'm a freelance journalist, but I've been a senior executive on several newspapers, The Times, The Independent and Prospect magazine, so I have worked with loads and loads and loads of people on work experience um, and trainees, and I was fascinated last week to go to a lecture by Professor James Heckman of um, the University of Chicago. He's an economist and has done a lot of work on really identifying what these soft skills are, how important they are, and how much they can be taught. And he had a fantastically um, rem- memorable acronym, which was um, OCEAN. And OCEAN stands for, these were skills that have been uh, research that are very evidence-based by, in a way that only a very serious economist would do. They were openness, being extrovert, being conscientious. That's the Woody Allen joke about 80% of success is turning up on time, I think. Um, they were agreeableness. And then the last one was neuroticism which I actually confused at first for eroticism, which completely <laughs> threw me in the um, very august surroundings of the, of the Young Foundation. But what was meant by that was people who were a little tiny bit obsessive and would go back and check things and make sure they got them right. So I think that's a very memorable thing if you're thinking about how what skills people really need. And uh, to me, they rang very true as somebody who's worked with a lot of interns. But um, the question I'm going to ask is... What is the minimum amount of money people should be paid and what is the maximum amount of time they should be allowed to work? Because you're dealing with that question on a, on a weekly basis as, a, as an executive on a newspaper when you're dealing with people on work experience or internships. And one, one more here. Thank you. Um, Guy Marcus, researcher and intern coordinator at the, at the RSA. Um, I had two thoughts I wondered if the panel could comment on. First was um, sparked by Gemma's description of the application process for the internships. Of course, 50 applications of one internship isn't actually that many for most organisations. It's, it's quite average. But um, what you're really talking about is cultural capital. Being able to look someone in the eye, shake their hand, uh, small talk, this is cultural capital, and it doesn't actually take that long to teach 
as in the Young Foundation, does two-week programmes which are shown to be really effective. So really, is the elephant not in the, in the room, not the fact that by having cultural capital as a means of getting an internship, you're just propagating inequality. And actually, maybe that training on kind of how to shake someone's hand should be part of all internship programmes. That's my first hmm. point slash question. The other is, everyone's talking about needing to get a job. People don't actually need jobs, they need to get by. So isn't there space in this discussion for how you look more towards portfolio careers or how internships and just in general employability and apprenticeships can be helping people to prepare for a situation where we're probably not going to have a job for life? The way we've been taught that the world works is not how it works. And so actually maybe the discussion should move more towards how do we prepare people to understand that really a job isn't the aim. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I can <coughs> first. Do you want to pick up some of those? The, the variety of sort of soft skills, what stage, uh, what stage should reasonably young people be, be expect to acquire them? Is it employee's responsibility to give it to them? Um, what should policies on pay and hours be? Well, yeah. in terms of what sort of how long people should work and so on, I think that you know, it, it's up to the individual and, and the employer. I think that I, I, it's a very personal view, I guess, but I think that after sort of six to nine weeks or so, you know, I mean, that's a personal view. I don't know, and it depends, I guess, on the occupation. So I think it's very difficult to give a definitive answer. Paid. No, I think it should be paid. Yeah, I think that you know, if an organisation is benefiting from that resource and work, it should be paid for. I fundamentally believe that. Can I just deal with the, the apprenticeship? Piece. First off, someone made the point at the back about 20-year-olds versus 50-year-olds. There are now 200 different types of apprenticeship job. They cover almost every sector of, of society and every occupation. And I also agree with your point that it isn't just about getting a job. One of the things that it wasn't quite a road to Damascus conversion for me or an epiphany, but when I was running British Gas's apprenticeship program, you know, I had to go and talk to the 200 intake of our apprentices and I was seeing them rather like this and I could see that 90% of them were so bored the thought of having the grey suit from head office coming in welcoming them unfortunately I was only told to talk for 10 minutes so I couldn't bore them for that long but you could see just thought bloody hell yeah and three of the boys at the back guys um, were whispering to each other and giggling and I thought that's bizarre you know the fact that they've already built a... They've only been together for a week. How could they have built that relationship in such a short amount of time? You know, that they're that intimate with each other. So I made a beeline for them, which they hated. I could see them think, oh, shit, excuse me, you know, as I was getting <laughs> towards them. Um, and I walked up to them and I said, yeah, hi, guys, how's the... the yeah, you've only been here for a week. So I was just, you know, you obviously know each other very well. I said, yeah, we're three brothers. And it's very interesting, very interesting, and Martin mentioned Hull specifically, because they were from Grimsby, actually, but very clear... And I said to them, how do you know? They said, well, we're three brothers. And the oldest, sort of, I guess, the more dominant, then turned around to me and said, you know, this program is going to change our lives because my grandfather or our grandfather and our father were on the, on, you know, on the trawlers, fishermen. And that's what we always thought we'd do. And it was allowed at 12 years of age, we were out in the trawlers in the North Sea with my dad and so on. But because of fishing quotas, it's gone. And he turned around to his younger brother, who was 17, this lad was 21, and he said, and he's already been in trouble with the police. And of course, 17 went, shut up, don't tell him that. You know. <laughs> and, and he said, but the point I was going to make about your point, he said, you will give us skills to be a, a top gas engineer, we have to be an expert electrician, an expert plumber, you have to be, and we'll go. He said, I can now, if I don't like British gas, 
I'm sorry to tell you this, but if you don't, don't like British gas, three years' time I can go and live in New Zealand. I go, You've given me, I've got a passport for the rest of my life. And that's what he said. So don't underestimate how important skills are to the individual. This is not just about employers and so on. So to me, access to apprenticeships, on your point, really important. I would separate apprenticeships and internships. They are nothing like each other. Don't confuse the two. Completely different. Said apprenticeships are real jobs, and we also have a significant number of apprentices. The fastest growing part of the apprenticeship program is 25 plus. All say all age groups are growing dramatically as we re-establish apprenticeships back in this country. Yeah. So we've got. I mean, the oldest is 61. Ryan, is that right? 61-year-old started an apprenticeship. And there is a bit of a problem. You turn around to a 53-year-old and said, do you want to go on an apprenticeship program? And go, well, I don't really like being called an apprentice at 53. But we've got people of all ages. So it's, it's all industries, all ages. And I tell you, it does not prefer the upper, middle, lower classes. It is just, do you want to do the job? Come on, we'll give you the skills. And in many, many cases, we'll give you a great foundation for the rest of your life. And I can... One of the reasons I love working on apprenticeships, I've worked for a lot of companies that some people have hated, thought we give really bad service, and I got beaten up for apprenticeships. I have yet to find anybody on the far left, the far right of politics, who can find something fundamentally to undermine about the apprenticeship program. So we've got to do more of it, and we've got to do a lot more manufacturing and engineering. But we've got to produce products, whether it's cars, whether it's whatever, that people want to buy. And that's why we do compete with other countries around the world. If they've got better skilled people who build better product than us, we will never build you know, a more sustainable economy and more jobs for everybody in this country, not just the few. And we've got a real job to do to actually remove this terrible injustice and tragedy that is evolving of a million 16, 24-year-olds unemployed in this country. That's the real problem we've got to address. Skills is just part of the solution. Laurie, do you... <laughs> Laurie, do you want to pick up the, the point about pay and hours? Do you, um, and more broadly in terms of sort of whether it's a degree of exploitation and unfairness, do you think the answer lies in exhortation and schemes such as New Deal for the Mind, such as the Taylor Bennett Foundation, or does it lie in more legislation and regulation? Well, I really respect uh, what the Taylor Bennett Foundation and New Deal of the Mind do. I think it's very, very important. It's filling a gap uh, which is left uh, by government at the moment by uh, the destruction of, e.g., the Future Jobs Fund, but that's the problem at the moment. You can't, and I think it's in many ways morally wrong, to rely on private individuals um, to give that charity and to you know, make schemes to employ young people as, a, as, as an active charity rather than something that we should all be invested in as a society through taxation. And that's what I believe, personally. I think that it's insufficient um, to e even just to ask the banks to do it. I mean, I think Martin's point is very, very valid, that you should be getting people who are currently asking young people to pay thousands and thousands of pounds extra individually in, forms of, in the form of university fees, in forms of increased taxation throughout their lives. Um, the banks are asking us to fund them. They should be giving something back. But I think 
fundamentally this is something we need to be addressing together as a society, not just asking the richest among us to pay. Otherwise, we're going to be getting um, we're, we're going to be getting jobs, and we're going to be getting an employment market which is dictated solely by the needs of business rather than by what we all want as a society. And I'm aware that many people here are business leaders, but many people aren't. And I think you have to have the uh, perspectives in there of people who aren't. And on the question of employment and skills, I just think it's very, very simple. Um, you can't... Um, increasing skills is important, but you can't just polish someone's CV and expect that to sort out the employment crisis. I think um, the point that you made was absolutely vital, this cultural capital thing. And I think we need to be talking about, as well as cultural capital, we need to be using the word class. And we need to be saying, um, like a bit like Owen said before, um, or, you know, on, the, on the issue of class, it is easier. You know, people who are from middle-class backgrounds often come out of university knowing how to shake someone's hand. You know, the problem isn't that young people don't know how to shake other people's hands. The problem is that we're giving the jobs to the young people who already do. People learn these things on the job, and we're giving the few jobs that remain to people who are from middle class and upper middle class backgrounds and, and, and above. And I think this is something we should be very, very... Um, this is something we should be very, very aware of and not confuse the idea that it's young people who need to be upskilled rather than employers who need to take a long, hard look at who they're employing. OK, we've got five more minutes, so I'm going to take three more questions now, and then the panellists will have a go at some of those. So one here. Hi, Shiv Malik, the author of um, Jilted Generation, and uh, just started a new think tank called, uh, if there needs to be another think tank in, in Whitehall, um, called the Intergenerational <laughs> Foundation, um, or if, to work on kind of these issues. The question is this, I think it's the most extraordinary panel. Um, we have, on one hand, sort of a representative of government um, in a world where, you know, clearly you want to do... Um, the or governance, I should say, uh, that you want to do the right thing by young people, make sure that something can be done, but in a world in which government is generally supposed to stay out of people's lives and certainly out of uh, businesses' uh, way. Uh, we also have a representative of big business who, in a sense, um, you know, comes from Britain and yet her, by her own admission, you know, Citibank doesn't really care about British young particularly, it cares about the best talent, which is right for the business in, in many sense, uh, uh, senses. And uh, we also have representatives of charities uh, wanting to do the morally correct thing or find some kind of equitable solution to all of this. And all of these three points are incredibly worthy and valuable, except the point is, is that do we really have um, the political tools to deal with uh, the problems that face the young? Um, can actually government do anything in this situation? I know it's incredibly bleak, but let me add this in as well, which is that Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs has actually only made seven prosecutions since two 2007 on national minimum wage. So they actually really don't care in that respect about making sure that young people or unpaid interns are actually paid. They've never really prosecuted anyone for it, even though there are estimates 100,000 of these uh, unpaid interns every year. Um, so uh, the question is really, in that sense, what can we do? Uh, uh, you know, does this country have a congenital problem with not really worrying about its youth in the political climate that we have? One down here. 
Hi, I'm Rachel Chris from uh, Inclusive Employers. And I just wonder if uh, we're talking about talent and wanting the most talented people, but I wonder if we could widen what our view of talent is because we look at young people and we're saying, you really need to turn you into the white middle class person from the elite university if you're going to get on here. And so we'll fix you, but maybe we need to fix what we think talent is and widen it. One, one, one last question over here and back. Thank you. I'd just like to ask the panel what you will think interns actually want out of the internship. Because I've done, I've done several internships, and one of the most notable things about which ones were a success and which weren't were um, the places that knew how to reward their interns and noticed that each intern wanted a diff- slightly different thing out of what they were doing. Um, but I've never really heard anyone kind of articulate a cohesive idea of what... Does an intern want a job offer? Does an intern want networking opportunities? Does an intern just want to be paid? What do you think the interns who work for you actually want out of you? Gemma, a whole range of issues there. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I think what I'd like to do is pick up on this point about white middle class because um, the last thing I want to do is give the impression that our interns are white and middle class, right? That's utterly inaccurate. My point around... Um, young people in Britain is that I have a global hiring agenda so obviously what I'm interested in doing is is hiring people from all over Europe and by the nature and Africa and the Middle East so by the nature of that actually ethnicity is 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 not a diversity issue if anything it's gender that's an issue for Mm -hmm. me in financial services it's the fact we get so few women who apply to us Um, But the point about the application process and shaking hands and all the rest of it, of course we wouldn't not employ somebody because they didn't have a good handshake. That's not the point. The point is that when you've got incredibly talented people in front of you, the smallest breaches of social etiquette, whatever they are, will um, propel somebody to make a subjective decision. And the point of having all these different screening stages is that we get to look at our CVs and say, you know what, this university has a career service that we know does not upskill in CVs. So we're going to put them through anyway because we know that. I've just, we just do that. We do that all the time. We do group exercises because, trust me, the Oxbridge confident public schoolboy who has wowed six interviews can come unstuck in a heartbeat in a group exercise when he does this to the other people in the room, or, sorry, or, talk, or talks <laughs> over the women or whatever it may be. And that's the whole point of a really rigorous process, is that you get to test people in different scenarios. And I think, to be fair to corporates for, from an internship point of view, we cannot fix the social ills of our education system, of the people who go to university. What we can do is try and be as equitable and diverse in our hiring strategies as we can be. And the only way we can do that is to test all kinds of elements of people's personalities because the truth is that the candidate from the University of East London may not be great at networking but probably will be a rock star in a group setting and that's the only way we can test it is to look at every element of somebody's personality. Any thoughts on those issues? Yes, um, um, on the on the sort of fair access point and application process we, we encountered, um, we have a similar process to, to you at City except we sort of tweaked it down and so it has um, you, you, you have an application form where you, where you answer very basic questions like why are you interested in a career in PR and communications? Um, you know, what is the single biggest challenge you face as an individual? And then they have uh, numerical testing and group exercise, presentations, interviews with a number of people across the whole day. And what we're looking for is raw talent. 
uh, commitment, um, ambition, interest, reliability, creativity. These are the skills that, or the, the intrinsic skills that we're looking that, for that we can then marshal and help them launch their careers. That's, that's sort of from the, the candidate perspective, if you like. But also what we've learned through, through running this programme uh, since 2008 is that it relies absolutely on partnership. So, yes, it's all uh, Taylor Bennett's employees. Yes, it's our corporate partners who give up their time and money in terms of the interns and educating them about the type of talent that they might want to recruit. Yes, it's working with trade bodies uh, on this issue of, you know, lack of um, ethnic minority graduates in the sort of talent pool in communications. And it's only by bringing together all these threads that you can affect the change. So you have to inspire not just the graduates and educate them about the career uh, and equip them with the skills, but also the employers to, to, to change their mind mindset uh, and be receptive to that kind of background. Simon? Yeah, I, the only last comment, because I, we've got very little time, is um, just to say that, you know, I, I do think a positive in terms of slightly more joined-up government, and as I said, I, I've only spent the last 18 months of my life or so in, in the public sector and, and working in this environment, is that... Uh, you know, I work for the Department for Education and for Biz currently, but we're working with DWP to identify through Job Centre Plus um, you know, tens of thousands of people that are long-term unemployed who come from more disadvantaged backgrounds where we can run a program as part of access to apprenticeships around the Job Centre Plus DWP program around work experience uh, and work trials and the work experience program run, runs for about 8 to 12 weeks and the work trialling for about 4 weeks and what we're going to be doing is approaching uh, thousands of employers who offer work experience and work trials you know, right across engineering, manufacturing and other areas to say look you know, you're offering this why can you not convert this into a real job um, and if you can convert it into a real job give this person who was on a work experience or work trial period who's long term unemployed i.e. has been unemployed for many months um, not only give them that experience but convert it into a, a proper paid job called an apprenticeship so you know, that's one small <coughs> step around cross government working I'm asking for us to get any credit for it so actually what we should be doing but I just think I just want to make a point about linking work experience and work trials into actually real long-term sustainable employment. Thank you very much. Laurie, that word talent, um, do you think employers are taking too narrow a view of it? Well, um, I think employers are always going to take too narrow a view of talent unless we have a sea change in how we understand employment and profit in this country. And um, I think Simon is absolutely right. If we have, like, if, if we can have basic steps, all right, it's, it's very, it's very easy to talk in theory, in theoretical terms here. We can take basic steps right now to make this a bit better by changing the culture. We can do what Martin suggested. We can bring back the Future Jobs Fund and bring it back better, so it doesn't only apply to a small number of people in this country because the conditions were quite stringent for who could apply for the Future Jobs Fund. Um, we can pour more money into apprenticeships. We can pour more money into work training in these placements like that. But until uh, we move on from a culture in which people like Gemma can sit here and say that they're doing their duties to society um, as big employers and as, you know, large... I'm sure I said that, but... Or imply... Well, maybe you didn't imply that you had any duty to society. I don't know if you think that. I don't know if you... I don't know if you think... Actually, tell you what, let me share a moment with you. 
um, on the subject of um, the difference between uh, impl- uh, how employers see and how banks see um, in the employment of young people and what the experience is like for young people on the ground. As somebody who is privileged to have done internships, all right, in 2008, uh, around October, um, so just after the financial crash, um, I happened to be doing an internship in Canary Wharf, and I was um, 21 and I, had, um, I was working for the Independent on Sunday at the time, and I was walking back having done a 10-hour day, and we were, I was already seeing you know, the difference, having come out of university, the difference starting to show between me and the other people I knew who, weren't, who couldn't do internships. And I was standing on that little bridge, I don't know if people know Canary Wharf, uh, in between uh, the two stations over the, over the canal, and um, I got a call from my boyfriend at the time uh, to say that his uh, good friend of his and ours from university had committed suicide after nine months of uh, not being able to find a job again after she was 26, um, and she basically spent the whole time since out of university not being able to find things that suited her skills, and she'd finally, finally had enough. And I was standing uh, on that bridge, and I saw uh, the final I from Citigroup sort of blink out, and they were taking the letters down one by one as they moved the headquarters because of, because of the crash. And I just thought it was this really, really powerful moment which sort of said to me, oh, my God. And I just thought, we, we are fucked. You know, <laughs> we are really... You are if you don't get your facts right. I mean, we've been in that building for however long. That's a it was, really, it was, really it was, sad it, story. It, I'm sorry, it was... It, it was, it was uh, uh, well, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know why they were taking the lights down, but no. they, certainly, they certainly took that thing down yeah. one by one. There were people pouring out of those buildings in October, you know, not having any... And, you know, we're heading for another crash, so I'm not, I'm not, sure, what the, I'm not sure what the interns in your company at the moment are going to do. I'm sure they have very nice salaries, but, you know, God help them in three years time when the banks come tumbling down again because this is not we are not we are not fine at the moment this is a situation that links into a wider employment crisis a wider financial crisis and we need it to get does, real but big, but big corporates like us or not and you clearly don't um, are responsible for for hiring employing retaining and developing millions of people in this country and it's true that banks had their part to play a huge part to play in the financial Mm -hmm. crisis my own bank included but if we're going to move forward we need employers like ours to hire 750 graduates right because of the best will in the world smes up and down this country are going to hire a few here and there but without large corporates reinvesting in their internship schemes and their graduate schemes we're not going to get the great volumes of people that we need back to work Okay, very quickly, um, well, Hilly, uh, it's a great name for the past when I was Laurie's age. I was pitching to you at the Independent, uh, and uh, you never commissioned me, but, you know, you didn't have to. Um, uh, now, um, I mean, the point is, unpaid work, unpaid internships, a lot of uh, newspapers and uh, magazines are held up a bit like this yeah. uh, by free labour, and it should just stop. So, you know, the answer is uh, pay them. Uh, and pay them minimum wage, and uh, that's that. Uh, if you are going to uh, give people free work experience, that's different, and it needs to be difficult for you. You need to be giving them something, much to the, the point at the back. You need to be giving them something for the free labour that they're providing to you. It shouldn't just be the culture within newspapers, which is get an intern onto that. Um, so uh, that's 
that's, that's my first point. Cultural capital, absolutely right. But let's not have any illusions about this. Let's not have any illusions about this. It is not, again, it's not fair. It's not, it's not that everybody who is working within uh, these sectors has these skills in the first place. Has anyone tried to get Will Hutton to a meeting on time? Uh, has anyone tried to look Roger Alton or Paul Dacre in the eye? And the truth is, these people don't need those skills. Now, I, you know, I now work for the Jewish Chronicle, and the Jewish community uh, famously always, the Jewish community tells its children, you don't need to be as good as these people, you need to be twice as good. And that is what we are trying to tell people coming through our future jobs fund schemes. It's not about mimicking those people, because a lot of them don't have the soft skills. A lot of them are rubbish. It's about being better than them. And on the, this, this leads into the issue of, um, of access and, uh, and, in fact, positive discrimination. I think we need to think about this in a completely different way. Um, the talent pool is too narrow. I judged the Orwell Prize for political journalism uh, uh, last week, and I made the point that there were very, very few journalists of uh, any quality coming through uh, under the age of 40. Laurie is an exception, obviously. Um, the problem is that this is now affecting the quality of journalism because the talent pool is so narrow. Now, I, again, it's a point I always make, but we, I think we need to, need to drum this home. If a premiership football club was recruiting from white middle-class public school boys, it would be a rubbish football club. So why do we recruit in that way elsewhere? It's absurd and it's wrong. And businesses need to know that they would actually be better if they threw their net wider. And finally, I just want to use the example of the original uh, New Deal from the 1930s, often much maligned scheme, but one that I think was uh, hugely successful in many ways, particularly in the cultural sphere. Uh, produced some great artists and some great writers. Mark Rothko, Saul Bellow, all came out of that project. Um, and when you went on to the, uh, the original Works Progress Administration schemes under the, uh, uh, under the old um, New Deal, everybody got a little booklet to tell you what your rights were uh, and how it would work, whether you could join a union, how much you would be paid. Great, very, very clear piece of work, very beautiful, beautifully illustrated. At the back, there are little drawings which say, why does this matter? Uh, and there are these little stick drawings, again, very, very lovely, um, of what happens when you lose work. And what happens is you lose hope, your family breaks down, you get social, you get, uh, social disorder. Um, there's a great little picture of uh, people loafing on street corners. We loaf on street corners is what happens. And then there's a full page, and this is in a government document that went out to everybody on the scheme, which was tens of thousands of people. Uh, and it's a uh, simple phrase, and it says, work stops you going nuts. <laughs> and that was the official government line, and I think that's absolutely right. It doesn't matter whether it's a conventional job or meaningful employment. Uh, that's the truth of it. And we need to recognise that if we've got a million or more young people unemployed, it's going to be a disaster. Thanks very much, and thank you all for coming. I'm sorry I didn't quite get all your questions in, but um, I hope you have a good debate. Thank you all the speakers. Thank you.